We are in uh, 1 Kings chapter 14, 1 Kings chapter 14, the beginning of the end. We're going to go ahead and read uh, the 20 verses. I'll read those out loud. You follow along. I'm reading from the, the ESV this morning. Verse 1 says, At that time, Abijah, the son of Jeroboam, fell sick. And Jeroboam said to his wife, Arise and disguise yourself, that it not be known that you are the wife of Jeroboam, and go to Shiloh. Behold, Ahijah the prophet is there, who said of me that I should be king over this people. Take with you ten loaves of some cakes and a jar of honey and go to him, and he will tell you what shall happen to the child. Jeroboam's wife did so. She arose and went to Shiloh, and she came to the house of Ahijah. Now Ahijah could not see, for his eyes were dim because of his age. And Yahweh said to Ahijah, Behold, the wife of Jeroboam is coming to inquire of you concerning her son, for he is sick. Thus and thus shall you say to her. And when she came, she pretended to be another woman. But when Ahijah heard the sound of her feet as she came at the door, he said, Come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why do you pretend to be another? For I am, in char uh, for I am charged with unbearable news for you. Go tell Jeroboam, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, because I exalted you from among the people and made you leader of my people Israel and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you, and yet you have not been like my servant David, who kept my commandments and followed me with all his heart, doing only that which was right in his eyes. But you have done evil above all, who were before you and have gone and made for yourself other gods and metal images, provoking me to anger, and have cast me behind your back. Therefore, behold, I will bring harm upon this house of Jeroboam and will cut off from Jeroboam every male, bond, uh, both bond and free in Israel, and will burn up the house of Jeroboam as a man burns up dung until it's all gone. Anyone belonging to Jeroboam who, who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. And anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. For Yahweh has spoken it. Arise, therefore, go to your house. When your feet enter the city, the child shall die. And all Israel shall mourn for him and bury him. For he only of Jeroboam shall come to the grave, because in him there is found something pleasing to Yahweh, the God of Israel, in the house of Jeroboam. Moreover, Yahweh will rise up for himself a king over Israel, who shall cut off the house of Jeroboam today. And henceforth, Yahweh will strike Israel as a reed is shaken in the water, and root up Israel out of this good land that he gave her gave to the gave to their fathers and scattered them beyond the Euphrates because they have made their ashram provoking Yahweh to anger and he will give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam which he sinned and made Israel to sin verse 17 when Jeroboam's wife arose and departed and came to Tirzah and as she came to the threshold of the house the child died and all the Israel buried him and mourned for him according to the word of Yahweh, which he spoke to his servant Ahijah the prophet. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam, how he 
warred and how he reigned, behold, they are all written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel. And the time that Jeroboam reigned was 22 years, and he slept with his fathers, Nadab, his son, reigned in his place. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before you today, and we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, the lessons that you desire to teach us. We come to a passage this morning that's full of rebellion, but yet we also come to a passage that we find your eternal grace. And so I pray, Lord, even as we uh, take a look at your word, that you would remove the distractions from us, that you would uh, speak to us from your word, and that you would be our teacher. And might we uh, respond appropriately. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, with our lesson this morning, it just begins simply by telling us that Abijah, the son of Jeroboam, became sick. Point one on your, your outline, a sickly child. You know, medical trials are, are challenging times, especially when, when the medical diagnosis involves children. You know, I'd venture to guess that almost uh, everyone here in this room ex experienced some sort of medical challenge, if not personally, uh, most likely with a cl close family member. On uh, February 11th, 2022, this was a special day in Carla and I's life. Uh, this, this day was full of emotion, full of happiness and joy. Uh, the week prior to this day, uh, the Lord in his faithfulness uh, allowed me to remember recall an event that happened 27 years prior to this day. Carla and I, along with our three children, were living in Colorado. Rachel was only 12 weeks old at the time, and she became very sick. She came down with pneumonia <coughs> and spent 10 days in intensive care. You know, when you're in the midst of a challenge like that, uh, it seems as if time stands still is even though things are going on on either side of you, you're really focused on your little child. And you always want to know what's going to happen. You know, God in His faithfulness encouraged us through close friends who were praying with us and encouraging us with God's Word. And one of those close friends, many of you probably know in here, that's, his name is Rocky Wyatt. Rocky reminded us of, <clears throat> of the character of God and that no matter what would happen, God is always good. No matter what would happen, God's plan for our lives is better than what we think. And so we felt like it was a blessing for us that Rocky could be there on that special day for us. Uh, we're thankful for that. But when children become sick, it's a challenging time. And these types of challenges, like all trials, are, are gracious opportunities given to us by God to remind us of our frailty before our Creator. Life's challenges are opportunities for us to either continue to trust in God's sovereign direction for our lives, or they're there to bring us in humble submission if, we're gonna be, if we are in rebellion towards Him. 
And, and this is what I believe, what I see, what's going on here in the life of King Jeroboam. God is providing an opportunity for this wicked king to repent, to turn completely from his sin and bow in submission to his creator. If you take a look at the last two verses in chapter 13, you know, as a reminder, Jeroboam stood in the high places, uh, in, the high, in the place of the high priest, and he offered sacrifices to God, and, and this was profane in the eyes of God. And we're told at the close of chapter 13, look at those last two verses. It says that Jeroboam did not return from his evil way. But again, he made a priest of the high places from among all the peoples. Any who would, he ordained to be priests of, in the, of the high places. And this event became sin in the house of Jeroboam, even to blot it out and to destroy it from off the face of the earth. You know, we, we understand God's nature, God's, God's attribute is, is patience. Uh, he is full of steadfast love. You know, God is referred throughout Scripture as being patient and slow to anger. But at the same time, God is patient and slow to anger. He will not allow con continual rebellion to go unpunished. I want you to see how the prophet Nahum has recorded for our benefit to remind us of God's character. And to me, as you look at this, this uh, characterization of who God is, it, it's just simply amazing. In Nahum chapter 1, we're recorded that for our benefit, that, that a jealous and avenging God is Yahweh. Yahweh is avenging and wrathful. Yahweh takes vengeance on his adversaries. And he reserves wrath for his enemies. So even though God is avenging and wrathful, the one who takes vengeance, one who is reserving wrath on his enemies, in the midst of all this, we're reminded in the very next verse that Yahweh is slow to anger and great in power. And then that verse 2 or verse 3 closes off by saying, and Yahweh will by no means leave the guilty unpunished so in embedded in between god's righteous anger in his willingness to to punish we see god's attribute of his patience his long suffering you know we're reminded in second peter chapter three that the purpose behind god's patience is for salvation the purpose for long suffering is to allow hearts to humble themselves and repent of sin. The purpose for long-suffering is to put on dis display God's grace and his mercy. And I believe that this is what God is doing when we come to chapter 14, verse 1. Uh, it simply tells us that Abijah, Jeroboam's son, is sick. You know, we can't be certain of Abijah's age, you know, in our passage that we read this morning the word child is used and that hebrew word for child i believe it's it's ne'er is how you pronounce it. it it simply means in an age range from infant to adolescent so we don't know how old this person was 
we do know that this sickness was not just a common cold. The word sick here means to be infirmed. It means to be weak. It means to be wounded. It was a serious illness to the point that it caused Jeroboam to seek out help. And that brings us to point two, a deceptive conspiracy. It says in verse two that Jeroboam says to his wife, he says, arise and disguise yourself, that it not be known that you are my wife. Go to Shiloh, and behold, Ahijah the prophet is there, the one who said of me that I should be king over this, this people. You know, I find it kind of ironic here that in his desperation, in his desperate need, he doesn't seek out one of the many gods that he's created but he turns to the one true God. And if you think about it, this is what people do when they're desperate. Deep down in their hearts, people know that there is one true God. There's one creator of all. But often they just refuse to submit to him or submit to him by the way he does, uh, has commanded to be submitted to. And by refusal to submit all they're doing is storing up God's vengeful wrath I need for us to look at Romans 118 in Romans 118 through 22 it says for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men by who by their right unrighteous unrighteousness suppress the truth for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his internal, e eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in things that have been made, so they are without excuse. The passage continues and says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him or as God, or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. You know, as we look around, we see that people only want what they can get from God. They don't want the truth that they need, desperately need to hear. They only want the immediate help that they wish they can get from him. They often view God like a, like a magic genie, wanting their wishes granted so that they can be happy. And I think this is true of Jeroboam here. In fact, one commentator said it this way. They said that Jeroboam wants the help of the word in emergencies of life, but not the rule of the word over the course of life. In verse 2, Jeroboam continues to recreate God in his own image. He tells Mrs. Jeroboam, he says, disguise yourself. Uh, and here we begin to see that Jeroboam is very ignorant of God's attributes. I want you to take a look at verse 5. Read verse 5. And what attribute of God is implied in this verse? What's the attribute there that's, in, that's implied? Uh, 
What's that? He's omniscient. Yeah. He's all-knowing. All-knowing. God sees all things. He knows all things. Wayne Grudem, in his systematic theology, gives definition regarding God's knowledge. He says that God fully knows himself in all things actual and possible in one simple and eternal act. Let your mind (laughs) wrap around that. God fully knows himself and all things actual and possible in one simple and an eternal act. We're reminded in Hebrews, Hebrews 4, 12 through 13, it says, it says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of the spirit, of the joints and of, of morrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give an account. Jeremiah 23, 24 says, Can man hide himself in secret places that I cannot see him, declares Yahweh? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares Yahweh? Ecclesiastes 12, 14 says, For God will bring every deed into judgment and every secret thing, whether good or evil. God fully knows himself and all things actual and possible in one simple and eternal act. You know, that definition of what it means that God is all-knowing, that God is omniscient, the part of that definition that that really kind of amazes me is the fact that not only does God know all things actual he got he knows all things that are possible that could happen I need for you to in your Bibles turn to first Samuel first Samuel 23 here's one of those events that we see where God knows all things possible First Samuel chapter 23. In the context here, we'll be looking at verse 9, but in the context, because of Saul's jealous rage against David, he's, he's pursuing David to, to do him harm. Now look at verse 9. First Samuel 23 verse 9. He says, David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him, and he said to Abathar the priest, Bring the ephod here. And David said, O Yahweh, the God of Israel, your servant, has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. And so so David begins to ask a, a series of questions because he knows that God knows all things. Look at verse 11. He says, Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hands? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Yahweh, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And Yahweh said, he will come down. And then David inquires more. He says, will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And Yahweh said, they will surrender you. Now look at verse 13. This is simply amazing to me. And then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. Now look at this. 
Now Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah. He gave up the expedition. Totally amazing that God knows the outcome of possible events, not only actual events. God fully knows himself and all things actual and possible in one simple eternal act. A.W. Pink, in his book, The Attributes of God, he says this. He says, the apprehension of God's omniscience ought to bow us in adoration before him. Yet how little do we meditate upon this divine per perfection? And then he goes on and asks this question. Is it because the very thought of it fills us with uneasiness? Well, for the un unbeliever, it should fill you with uneasiness that God knows everything about you. But for the, the believer who's walking with the Lord, it should assure us before him that he knows that we're frail. We know that we're frail. But yet he's offered us his son so that we might enjoy his, his righteousness. So, Jeroboam comes up with a deceptive plan. But really, it's, it's an ignorant plan because he's, he, he fails to understand the attributes of God, the character of God. And next in our passage, we see Yahweh's condemnation in verses 6 through 9. You know, Ahijah being full aware of what's happening because God told him what to expect, he answers Mrs. Jeroboam and says this in verse 7. Look at verse 7. He says, Go tell Jeroboam, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, because I exalted you from among the people and made you leader over my people Israel and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you, and yet you have not been like my servant David who kept my commandments and followed me with all his heart, doing only that which was right in my eyes. Verse 9, but you have done evil above all who were before you and, gave, and have gone and made for yourself other gods and metal images, provoking me to anger and have cast me behind your back. King Jeroboam had been greatly blessed by God. He was given a kingdom. He was exalted over the ten tribes of David. And yet he turns his back on God and he walks away from him. God promised King Jeroboam that he would be with him and prosper him if only he would do one thing. And I think it's healthy and for us to go back and look at this reminder. So flip back to 1 Kings 11. You know, throughout Scripture, this is really the command for the believer. The Lord is speaking to Jeroboam through the prophet Ahijah. And look what he says in, in 1 Kings 11, verse 37. He says, I will take you and you shall reign over all that your soul desires and you shall be king over Israel. And then look, verse 38. If, if you will listen to all that I command you and will walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments as David my servant did, I will be with you and I will build a sure house as I built for David. 
and I will give Israel to you. You know, the Lord here just gives one simple request in one sense. He basically tells Jeroboam, honor me by obeying me. Love me and demonstrate your love for me by your being obedient to my word. You know, Jesus reminds us that, that whoever has his commandments and keeps them, he's the one that loves Jesus. And he who loves Jesus will be loved by his Father. You know, as I meditated on this and I kept asking the question, you know, why did Jeroboam throw it all away? Why did he turn his back on God? And the only answer I could come up with was pride. Jeroboam loved himself more than he loved God. God had given Jeroboam more than he could ask for. Uh, but he walked away from it by walking away from God, by turning his back on God. He loved himself more than he loved God. God's simple request of King Jeroboam was to live a holy life that would exalt the Lord of the universe. You know, as I studied this passage, I had to ask myself the question, you know, do I love God more than all other things? Do I love God to the point of living a holy life because this exalts him above everything? I need for you to turn your, your Bibles to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1. In 1 Peter chapter 1, this is what God is simply asking of his children. You know, not only does he require his children to live a holy life, but he reminds us as to, as to what he has graciously given us. Look at verse 13, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. God tells us that we're to prepare our minds for, for worship. We're to keep sober in spirit. We're to fix our hope completely on the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to your former lusts, which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves. Also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And he goes on and he says, if you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. And the question is why? Well, in verse 18, he tells us, because we were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from the futile way of, our, of, our, of life inherited from our forefathers. But we were redeemed with the precious blood as the blood unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. You know, God had done a lot for Jeroboam, and we can say the same as well. God has done a lot for us. Um, what God has done for us past tense in terms of as we look back to the Christ, the, the, the cross of that Christ bore for us, Jeroboam was to look forward to that same cross, that same plan of redemption. The Savior who is coming in the world to redeem Jeroboam is the same Savior that came into the world to redeem us. And all Jeroboam had to do was to repent of his sin and believe. Turn back to 1 Kings. 
You know, we're to demonstrate our love for our Savior by living a life of holiness, committed to obeying his word. But Jeroboam walked away from all that God had offered him. He refused to believe, and as a result, judgment is at hand. Verses 10 through 12 and verse 14 gives us the judgment of cessation. The Lord tells us that he's going to bring harm upon the house of Jeroboam, and he's going to cut it off from from every male, both bond and free in Israel. He's going to burn up the house of Jeroboam as a man burns up dung until it's all gone. And then he goes on to say, anyone belonging to Jeroboam who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. And anyone who dies in open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. And it will take place, for Yahweh has spoken it. And then... Ahijah tells his, Mrs. Jeroboam, he says, Arise, go to your house, and when your feet enter the city, the child will die. And then verse 14, he says, Moreover, Yahweh will raise up for himself a king over Israel who shall cut off the house of Jeroboam today. You know, God does not take sin lightly. This is a graphic picture that God presents here of his judgment upon a man who refuse to repent. The house of Jeroboam will be treated like excrement, he tells us. His, son will, his sons will not receive an honor of a decent burial. The end of Jer- Jeroboam's dynasty serves as a preview of the final judgment that will come, which will bring dishonor and destruction on every enemy of God. And when Ahijah says that the house of Jeroboam shall be cut off today, he's not, he's not referring to it immediately, but what he's saying is that there will be come a day when this will be fulfilled. And as you read verse 20, it tells us that Nadab, his son, took over the throne of Jeroboam after he died. But Nadab's reign was short-lived. It was only two years long. And he was struck down in cold blood. But there's another prophecy that we see here, and it goes beyond the time of Jeroboam. Uh, It's a prophecy of captivity. It's a future captivity for the nation of Israel. In verses 15 and 16, it says, Yahweh will strike Israel as a reed has shaken in the water and root up Israel out out of this good land that he gave their fathers and scattered them beyond the Euphrates. Because they have made their ashram or their, their, their wooden carved images that they, that they would worship and bow down to, and it provoked Yahweh to anger. And he will give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he sinned and made Israel to sin. And as we read through and as we study First and Second Kings, uh, uh, the theme is this future captivity for the, for the nation of Israel. And it comes up and over and over again just to remind us what sin does. Each generation repeats the sins of Jeroboam. They disregard the holiness of God. They choose idolatry rather than walking in humble obedience to God. And eventually people will suffer God's wrath about 200 years after this time it the northern tribes are to be carried off 
into exile, into Assyria. But these seeds of destruction for the nation of Israel, they were, they were sown in the life of Jeroboam. He was the beginning of their end. How do we know that God's going to do all this? How do we know that he's going to be true to his word? Well, our text gives us confirmation. God tells the king that his kingdom will come to a swift end. And the sign of that confirmation that God would hold true to his word would be the death of Abijah. Look at verse 17. He says, Then, then Jeroboam's wife arose and departed and came to Tirzah. And as she came to the threshold of the house, the child died. And all of Israel buried him and mourned for him according to the word of Yahweh, which he had spoken by his servant, Ahijah the prophet. You know, you look at this, and what a senseless tragedy this was. Uh, it's a needless tragedy. But yet we're reminded that sin has its consequences. Those who turn their back on God will face his eternal wrath. We're reminded in the book of Job that, that God's purposes will not be thwarted. He will accomplish everything that he has decreed to be so. In Matthew 5.18, Jesus reminds us that until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Out of all of Jeroboam's family, only Abijah had an honorable burial. And as we come to the end of our lesson here, I don't want this to end on a sad or sorrowful note because there's always hope that's what the word of god always brings us we need to be reminder be reminded of the goodness of our god and creator we have a gracious creator and i want you to look back at verse 12. in verse 12 ahijah gives uh, jeroboam's wife the news that she's not looking for the prophet says, when, you, when your feet enter the city, the child will die. But now look at verse 13. It says, all Israel shall mourn for him and bury him, for he on, only of Jeroboam shall come to the grave. But this is what I want you to look at. Next it says this. It says, because in him there is found something pleasing to Yahweh, the God of Israel. Again, we don't know how old Abijah was. Uh, but there was something found in Abijah that was pleasing to God. You know, throughout Scripture, we know that our lives are pleasing to God when we obey His commands. 1 John chapter 3, 21-22 says, Beloved, if our hearts does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because he, we keep His commandments. And do things that are pleasing in his sight. Abijah's name means Jehovah is my father. So perhaps Abijah was at an age where he understood the gospel. And he responded in faith. Hebrews 11.6 is very clear. That without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe 
that he is and that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. We also need to remember that our, that our faith to believe in Christ is a gift from God. The Apostle Paul is praying for believers at Colossae. And in his uh, prayer, he's petitioning to them that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Listen to this. So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects. Bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. So, in our study this morning, we have this rebellious king who not only turned his back on God, but he caused an entire nation to do likewise. And in the midst of all this, in the midst of this, we see the gracious work of our creator rescuing the life of one individual. Is that not like our God? That's what he does. I love what David wrote in his psalm. He says in Psalm 5, Your abundant, steadfast love, I will enter your house. At your holy temple, I will bow in reverence for you. And that's all because of what God does. God intervenes. So as we come to the end of this lesson, my the questions were well what are the implications for us what so what what does this mean for us well i've narrowed it down to two one for an unbeliever and one for the genuine believer so for those of you that are here in this room who have not repented of your sins and submitted your life to the lordship of christ i want to remind you once again that god is patient uh, but his patience will run out and he will leave you to deal with his eternal wrath. We need to be reminded again of what it says in Hebrews chapter 10. It says, for if we go on sitting, sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, uh, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. It goes on and says, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, who has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he, is which, by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the spirit of grace. It goes on to say, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You know, God is long-suffering, and he's patient, he's loving, he's infinitely gracious. And he's not willing or wanting anyone to perish. But for the one who turns his back on God's grace, just as Jeroboam did, there's nothing God can offer him. Only judgment remains. So I beg you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God.
And for the believer, for those who are in Christ, my challenge to you this week is to meditate on on the omniscience of God, God's all-knowingness. God knows you better than you know yourself. So take time this week and, and meditate on Psalm 139. And let your meditation drive you to the worship of God. I like what A.W. Pink says when it comes to studying God's omniscience. He says, the apprehension of God's infinite knowledge should fill the Christian with adoration. The whole of my life stood open to his view from the beginning. He foresaw my every fall my every sin, my every backsliding, yet nevertheless fixed his heart upon me. Oh, how the realization of this should bow me in wonder and worship before him. And might that be true of us as well. Well, Let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the gracious gift that you've given us in your son. You are a gracious God, full of long-suffering and patience towards us. And so, Father, I do pray for those in this room who do not know you, who have not repented of your sin, of their sin. God, I pray and ask that you would move in their hearts, help them to understand that they need a Savior and that only Jesus can save them. And God, by, by your gracious work, draw them to yourself and father i do pray for those of us who do know you we thank you for your word we thank you for the challenges we thank you for the reminder that that when we sin there is punishment when there is sin as a loving father you call us back god i pray that we would uh, be encouraged of the fact that you know us you know our weaknesses, you know our, our private sins, and yet, as believers, those have already been dealt with at the cross. So God, I pray that, that our lives would please you by walking away from things that we know to be sin, thoughts that don't honor you, words that, that, that do not bring encouragement or, or honor you. Father, we thank you for the gift of life that you've given us in your Son. And I pray, Lord, that as we strive each day, that we would be reminded of how much you think of us, even to the point of sending your Son so that we might spend eternity with you. Might we be encouraged this week for all that you're doing. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.